Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for August 21st, 2023. With us today are healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. John K. Hall, healthcare attorney David Glaser, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, many in Southern California and the Southwest are reeling from the effects of Hurricane Hillary, once a Category 4, but later downgraded to a tropical storm as it made its way into Southern California from the Baja Peninsula. Torrential rains were reported throughout the region last night. We have much news to report, and so we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Well, I have nothing really of significance to add to the discussion about the now infamous Levanta Bulletin on short inpatient stays. Um, The only thing I'll note is that in my totally unscientific survey on LinkedIn, it showed that 127 respondents were asked if they would admit a healthy Medicare beneficiary who presented to the ED with acute appendicitis. That's where Levanta said that that would be an appropriate diagnosis for inpatient admission. But 89% of people said, nope, they're going to put them in the hospital as outpatient. Now, moving on to something new, CMS released a memo recently that was overlooked by everyone. And I feel a little guilty because I missed it too. But I got lucky finding it. For a bit of background on this, we all know that CMS has regulations about discharge planning, and they were modified in 2019. Most notable was the requirement to provide information on post-acute providers, the resource use, and their quality of care. But interestingly, CMS has still not released the interpretive guidelines for the new regulations. So the survey organizations, when they survey you, they're just going to make it up as they go. But according to this memo, CMS has received reports of patients being transferred to post-acute providers without adequate information, and CMS is not happy. So they're alerting survey organizations to be alert to some specific deficiencies. So what are the issues? First, not telling the post-acute provider that the patient had behavioral issues that required additional care like a sitter, but was discontinued prior to transfer. These facilities need to know that. Next was a poor medication reconciliation, especially omitting the patient's use of psychotropics and opioids during the hospital stay. Third were skin issues that required treatment in the hospital but were not mentioned at all in the transfer paperwork. Then some post-acute providers were not informed that the patient had durable medical equipment such as BiPAP and WoundVac. Pretty significant omissions. Next was a lack of communication about the patient's home environment that would be relevant to the post-acute provider when planning for discharge, including omitting information that the patient was homeless or had no caregiver. Now, just reading this list of issues, the eternal pessimist that I am reads this list and thinks CMS was hearing about hospitals that omitted crucial information, perhaps in order to get a post-acute provider to accept the patient who was challenging to them or very costly. Obviously, this is not acceptable. 
No hospital likes to have a patient who's stable for discharge but has no safe destination. But the solution is not to deceptively transfer the patient so they become somebody else's problem. CMS also noted that hospitals have been omitting information about a patient's goals of care and treatment preferences. CMS is very big on ensuring that medical decisions are made in collaboration with the patient. So we need to ensure we're asking patients and documenting their preferences and sharing that information. They called out patient preferences for end-of-life care, suggesting that patients who did not want resuscitation were sent to post-acute care facilities and were resuscitated because that information was not conveyed to that facility. So what do you do? I'm going to put the link to this document in the chat. Go ahead and get it and read it later on after our episode today and assess your discharge program. Even CMS in the document provides a link to a discharge checklist. Now, they don't endorse this list, but if they link to it, you know it. They like to have all that information in your documentation. It is crucial to note this memo is addressed to survey agencies. CMS is telling them to focus their reviews on these issues. If that's not a red flag to make sure your process is in order, I don't know what is. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And Nicole, good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today I'm going to talk about rack audits. I know what you're thinking. Aren't you supposed to be the rack audit panelist? Of course you're going to talk about rack audits. Well, today I'm taking this podcast in a slightly different direction. I want to talk about secret hidden rack audits. As you're aware, the federal regulations limit RACs from going back more than three years to audit claims. Now, juxtapose the UPICs, TPEs, SMERCs, MACs, OIG, and even state Medicaid agencies. Everyone but the RACs are allowed more than a three-year look-back period. Some, like OIG, have long look-back periods. Coincidentally, when a company responds to an RFP or a request for proposal from CMS to ask act as CMS's vendor to conduct Medicare audits on America's Medicare providers, a clause in the proposed contract between CMS and the vendor is highly argued or negotiated. Which clause in the vendor's contract is most negotiated? I'll tell you. The clause that states that the vendor is a rack is most negotiated because if the vendor is called a UPIC instead of a rack, the vendor has a longer look-back period. Being called a UPIC suddenly becomes a commodity. There are no laws mandating UPICs to a three-year look-back period. All of a sudden, it's not hip to be a rack. Look into it. The contracts are public record. Ask Cotavides contracts with CMS. Notice I said contracts and not contract. What I have realized over time is that a vendor may be hired by CMS to be a rack auditor. But once the vendor realizes the limitations of being a rack auditor, the three-year look-back period, it goes back to CMS and asks if it can be considered a UPIC. Why? A UPIC can do everything that a rack does. However, it gets an additional three years to look back at claims 
And that means money. Cha-ching. I've noticed this trend in real life, but only for about 10 to 20 individual cases. I've not had time to draft a FOIA request. And quite frankly, my name on our FOIA requests nowadays results in a response that says something to the effect of use discovery. Even though my personal experiences should not be extrapolated across the country because that would be inappropriate and judgmental. I will give an example and you may extrapolate or not. There's a company that has been doing rack audits in North Carolina for the last five to eight years. It's called Public Consulting Group. PCG and I go way back. If you're a longtime listener of Rack Monitor, you'll recall that Ed Roche and I presented numerous podcasts about the debacle in New Mexico in 2013. The state of New Mexico put 15 Medicaid providers who constituted 87.6% of the behavioral health care providers in New Mexico at that time. The consequences were catastrophic. Thousands were out of behavioral health care services overnight. The reason that these 15 behavioral health care providers were put out of business overnight was because of a New Mexico vendor called PCG, same one as in North Carolina. Well, PCG issued a report to New Mexico after conducting Medicaid audits on these 15 behavioral health facilities, which accused the 15 facilities of fraud. And in 2013, PCG was considered a rack per contract. Today, when I have a case against PCG and make the three-year look-back period argument, I get a retort that it's not a rack. Instead, it's a UPIC. To which I say, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck. And I happen to have a baby duck right here whose name is Biscuit. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> thanks, Nicole, very much. And thanks to Biscuit as well. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of Nelson Mullins. We don't know the affiliation of Biscuit. We assume Biscuit is just a, a free agent. Uh, and coming up in about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer. And Dr. John K. Hall is going to share his point of view. It's something you'll certainly want to listen to. It's Monday. It's August the 21st, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You are invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join the effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with a Monitor Monday Risk Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning about the same time, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, the risks are just pouring in, right? So one of them 
clearly we're having some kind of Monday gremlins. Second, I don't have a cute little accompaniment. I'm, I'm in my office this morning. I don't have my dog, so I cannot match Nicole. Although when we get back to the Q&A, Nicole can fill us in on a biscuit update. In the spirit of the game apples to apples, I'm going to start my segment with something that's not risky. So you've asked me to be risky. I'm going to go with the opposite. So an update on my dumbest denials segment from last week. You may remember that that was a situation where a hospital had entire hospitalizations denied because in the infusion notes, the RN had signed her name without including RN. And I thought that was crazy. And it was. But I said, you know, there's always hope you had a hearing. The hearing actually is today. It was supposed to be right at the end of this broadcast. I thought I was going to have to leave after my segment. I don't because, as I said, things often work out. The state kind of admitted their error and they're going to pay the claims. It worked, right? So sometimes things do work out. So now the real risk. A client received a letter requesting a wide range of billing and coding information and copies of a variety of medical records. Before the letter concludes, please note that data regarding active investigations is classified as confidential, and I request that you treat all communication on this matter accordingly. Now, a request from an investigator to keep their contact confidential is quite common, whether it happens in a letter or in an oral communication from a government agent. Now, the agent has every right to make that request, and I certainly understand why they do it. They like to catch people by surprise but it's absolutely essential that everyone in your organization understands that it's a request and not a requirement. So why is the distinction so important? It's been quite common in my career that as I assist a client uh, responding to an investigation, we discover that someone, be it a current or former employee, learned of the investigation weeks or even months before it was brought to my attention. Typically, the person who first learned of the investigation took that request for confidentiality to heart and felt it was improper to tell a compliance officer, legal counsel, or their supervisor about the communication. Now, I get it. People in the healthcare industry are trained at length about HIPAA and the need to keep a variety of information close to the vest. We're told we can't share information with our spouse, colleagues, or close friends. In the healthcare world, when someone says, keep something confidential, we're trained to listen. But an investigation is not like medical information. There's no federal or state law that requires someone who knows about a government investigation to keep that information to themselves. Well, I wouldn't recommend it. It's perfectly legal to rent the Goodyear blimp, fly it above a stadium and declare Glazer Hospital is under investigation. And while I wouldn't put the message on a dirigible, I do think it should go to the right director. I'm trying my de-alliteration again. It didn't work that well. Whether it's a compliance or legal, someone needs to hear about the investigation as soon as it starts. Now, obviously training people about this after an investigation commences is useless, it's too late. You need to make sure that your entire organization knows that if they're contacted by a government agent, they should be on the horn to legal or compliance in a matter of minutes. Now, a well-run healthcare organization has at least annual compliance training. I strongly encourage devoting a portion of that training to how to respond when a government agent shows up. While most healthcare employees will never deal with a government agent, over the course of a decade, most healthcare organizations will have someone in the organization who is interacting with a government agent. Whether it's a police officer looking for a patient or an employee, 
or in a fraud investigator looking for information to pursue a patient or the entity itself, someone in the organization is going to be dealing with government investigators. And since you can't know who's going to draw that short straw, you need to train everyone. Taking five or 10 minutes to prepare every employee for that eventuality greatly reduces the risk that when it happens, something is going to go off the rails. So Chuck, the bottom line is that if one of your employees is thinking, like Madonna, I have a tale to tell, Sometimes it gets so hard to hide it well. Instead of letting it burn inside of them, they should apply a metaphorical fire extinguisher or perhaps some ice from Frozen and follow Adina Menzel and let it go. Contact from the government is important and all employees should know it needn't be and shouldn't be kept confidential from the compliance and legal teams. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson of Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here's good news. Coming your way soon is the highly anticipated Rack Monitor webcast CMS 2024 Rule Update, unveiling essential insights for case management and utilization review preparedness. In just 60 minutes, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will share his expertise, providing a concise breakdown of thousands of pages of CMS documents. You will gain an unwavering grasp on the 2024 Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule, along with the proposed rules for the 2024 Outpatient Prospective Payment System and Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Failure to comply with these changes exposes you to regulatory action, revenue setbacks, and compromised patient experiences. The webcast is this Thursday, August 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Don't let this essential Rack Monitor webcast slip through your fingers. Folks, we have a couple of minutes to answer your questions. So David Glaser, please join me, won't you? You bet. So first, for the folks who have put in the chat that they would... Uh, so those of you who don't have access to the chat, I said that I think generally a look back period on refunds should be 48 months. And if you're wondering why, send me an email and I will send you, I have a memo that I'll send you for free. It's a, it's a complicated memo. Um, people who have put that in the chat, their email, email it to me or I will not see it. Now, uh, I got a question I want to ask Nicole and John. I've got an audit, right? And I've looked at my notes. My notes are crummy. What do I do? Can I add, can I supplement my note? And how, if, if the answer is yes, how can I supplement my note in a way that's not going to get me into worse trouble? Uh, John, maybe we'll start with you. What do you have any thoughts on this? I'm assuming you're a physician in this case. Yeah, sure. Um, you can always supplement your record. You put today's date, the date that you're going to supplement it, and you note specifically that this is additional information that you have recalled since then. Make it transparent so that it doesn't look like you're doctoring the record for some reason. Even doctoring the record, John? Yeah, there you go. I knew you'd like that one. Uh, but yes, you are doctoring the record, but you're making it transparent that the time frame for it is after the original encounter. Uh, we frequently see this anyway. Docs who see a patient early in the day, they'll see them at 7 or 8 in the morning and complete a note at 4 or 5 in the afternoon. They just note that it's a late entry and the patient was the time of the day that the patient was seen. So this is not something that's unusual. Uh, but don't add stuff just to add it because fluff won't help you. 
So Nicole, let's, let's say my handwriting is really crummy. Um, is it kosher for me to take a dictaphone and in essence translate my chicken scratch or duck scratch in your case uh, into uh, a better English? I am going to actually take this question and give an example because this is a very good question that, that physicians need to know. Every state has a statute or a regulation or a rule that dictates how you're supposed to amend medical records in your state. So make sure you look at your individual state regulation first. So, but one example I have is that a physician who wanted to fix exactly what you said, David, she wanted to fix her handwriting. She wanted to rewrite the notes because her handwriting was bad. And I told her not to do so, or if she did so, to make sure she dates it the present day and then self-disclose the fact that she was doing that. She got very upset at this suggestion and fired me. But that's okay. She went to another attorney and did the same thing, and now she's in jail. So it all goes around. <laughs> well, and I think John's point is really the key. Or, and Nicole, you got to make it clear that you're doing mm -hmm. it today. It is absolutely okay to supplement. Just don't make it look like you're altering altering a record because you wind up as Nicole's client in jail. But if you say, hey, and, and it can be five years after the fact, if you say, you know, today's date, this is what I'm adding, people might doubt it, but it's kosher. Self-disclosure is key. You avoid penalties. Cheyenne, if you could bring Ron up, uh, I've got a quick question. I know Ron wanted to make a comment about Nicole's segment. And then yeah. after that, we'll turn it back to Chuck. Yeah, I just want to mention Nicole was talking about cotivity and we're all familiar with cotivity and we all hate them with a passion, but it's really important to understand that cotivity has, is a company that has multiple contracts. So when you get a letter from cotivity, it's important to understand who they're representing in their audit. Is it a rack audit? Is it a UPIC audit? Are they representing Blue Cross or Aetna or some other payer? The same way when we look at Levanta, Right, Levanta is our QIO for patient appeals, but they also separately have the contract for the national short stay audits. So understand who's asking the question and who they're representing when they're asking it. All right. I will answer one question from, from Pam who said, hey, can the supplement be added after the record has been sent to the auditor and denied? And I would say it's not going to be as useful, but absolutely, you can do it whenever. It may not work, but as long as you're transparent, it's not going to hurt. So, Chuck, uh, I know we've got some interesting comments coming up from John. I'll turn it back to you for those. Thanks, David. And thank you very much, everybody, for your questions and your comments. And let's continue. As, of course, many of you know, a lot of folks in healthcare continue to ponder the news story last week in ProPublica. That's the story about Zealous and Matthew Albright. Here now with his point of view on this amazing story is physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. Thanks, Chuck. Well, last week, ProPublica published a pair of articles online that caused a bit of a stir. And by that, I mean, I got a couple of dozen phone calls asking me if I knew about Matthew Albright and Zealous. Well, I scratched my head and looked around. The articles were published on the 14th and 15th of August. And they were, frankly, a sensationalized account of normal interactions between CMS and large financial organizations. So let's start at the very beginning of the article with this quote, quote, a powerful lobbyist convinced a federal agency that doctors can be forced to pay fees on money that health insurers owe them, end quote. Now that's definitely sensational. It's fair to say that most lobbyists are powerful. If they weren't, they wouldn't be in the business very long. 
Some are more powerful, largely due to the finances of the special interest they represent. It's common practice in Washington for a wide range of officials and employees to take jobs as lobbyists after they leave the government. This phenomenon is known as the revolving door. And the distinction between lobbying, consulting, and representing remains a bit blurry. But the bottom line, lobbying is not illegal. It's also not always in the, quote, public interest. It's the job of the government to protect the public. HIPAA promotes but does not require providers to use electronic payment or a third-party processor. Electronic payment and processor fees may be new, but they're not necessarily increased compared to processing paper checks. Providers always need to assess the relative value of their electronic payments, and every provider has a choice to enter into an agreement or not. Even if the contract seems coercive, providers still have a choice. So let's consider the bold claim, a powerful lobbyist convinced a federal agency that doctors can be forced to pay fees on money the, insurance, the insurers owe them. The statement isn't just misleading, it's vacuous. Based on the nature of lobbying, it's probably incomplete. The payment processing market is huge. It would be foolish to believe that other payment processors didn't exert some pressure on CMS to allow uncontrolled payment processing fees. Since many insurance companies also charge a processing fee for electronic payment, can anyone believe that no insurance company similarly leveraged CMS? Matthew Albright and Zealous did what any corporation would do if a government agency implemented financially adverse rules. If CMS was wrong, then the changes Zealous brought about are consistent with the regulation and government policy. Our concern should really be with CMS. If CMS inappropriately yielded to zealous pressure, the problem is agency performance. Succumbing inappropriately to lobbyist pressure is governmental poltroonery bolstered by mendacity. Other special interests likely lobbied CMS regarding the payment rules. They mitigated the appearance of impropriety, not by putting a former CMS official at the point of the spear. They avoided creating a paper trail, or more likely, they figured out how to prevent disclosure of their involvement. This is a story about government failure, not corporate misconduct. It's neither news nor newsworthy. My response to the articles remains, so what? That's how business works. So I'll finish with some advice for providers. If you don't like the laws or the regulations, hire yourself a lobbyist and help change the laws most important, stop re-electing your legislators. Read and understand your payer contracts and your, understand your payment options. Next, understand your reimbursement overhead. If it's higher electronically, don't use it. Next, understand your payment processing options. A processing service will change your overhead, but may not increase it. Last, as always, you earned your money. Spend it wisely. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, John, very much. That was physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall, and that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And a very special thanks to our panelists today, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and, of course, physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall, who shared his point of view with us. And one more thing before we go, folks, never miss a Monitor Monday ever. Simply visit rackmonitor.com forward slash podcast and join our community. And please join me tomorrow morning on Talk 10 Tuesday. That's when we're going to be talking about the patient safety indicators. They were released last week. 
by the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Reporting. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Money and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.